At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. In three, two, one. Today on the show, we have Nadia Vanderhayden. She is the Director of Sales and Marketing with SciGen Labs Incorporated and a critical care flight paramedic. Nadia, welcome to Operation Tango Romeo. Yeah, thank you for having me, Mark. Well, I am really excited about today because we got some cool-ass stuff to talk about. Uh, It has been probably 60 episodes since I've talked about psychedelics. And in the last 12 months, there have been some changes. So actually, let's start with SciGen, the company that you are with. What is it? What do they do? And why do they do it? Yeah, so SciGen is a um, psychedelic manufacturing company um, with the intention of providing synthetic psychedelics to um, researchers, corporations, um, and nonprofits that are perhaps offering their material for compassionate use. Um, we've, uh, you know, the founders of the company felt that there was a bit of a gap in, in the, um, basically in the, be able to, to be able to provide these psychedelics to researchers. Researchers had all these studies they wanted to do and they weren't able to find the material to do the studies. So SciGen kind of grew from that. Um, so my father is one of the founders and, and Danny Matika is the CEO and they kind of joined together to create this about two years ago. Um, and so right now we're in the process of um, building a commercial lab in Calgary where we will be able to produce um, at a larger commercial scale of these psychedelic materials to distribute to researchers basically around the globe so they can continue the studies, uh, these really important studies that seem to be coming up um, that basically were all halted in the 70s uh, at the beginning of the drug war and um, and now are able to, you know, these researchers are able to continue their studies, particularly for mental health and, and PTSD. There's some really interesting breakthroughs in the field. And we're just happy to be kind of this, uh, we're kind of a supporting company to help make sure these re- this research gets done. There's been more and more. I think they're legal now in Colorado, and it's just growing and growing. Whenever this conversation seems to come up on social media, uh, the usual sp- suspects come out with, oh, what what are we doing? <laughs> are you going to just get a bunch of people stoned out of their minds? What's that supposed to do? And there's that social stigma of just people that don't know what the blink they're talking about. Now, is that still going to be a barrier? Like, what are the barriers to market for you guys right now? Is it the social stigmas of the people that just don't know any better and that they have a knee-jerk reaction just like people did to uh, cannabis? Or, or is it the legal loop, um, uh, the legal barriers, or is it both? Well, right now, people have to remember that the pathway that these companies are taking in research these are not they're not doing the drug approval pathway to have a drug that you pick up from your pharmacist go home and and have a party. These are these studies right now are are. Um, Uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So most of these therapies are done under the supervision of a trained 
psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists. This is not done in 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 a setting at home alone. You're you're supervised. This is a process. The same way you'd go in for an hour to speak to a therapist, it would be potentially a four to six hour session with a therapist under, uh, um, you know, after ingesting the substance. And um, so it, I think the the whole market, potentially adult use market, you could say, or recreational use market is still probably years away. Um, right now, we're just looking at the, basically the medicinal market, the pathway that's supervised by medical professionals. So I think that removes some of the stigma when people think, oh, it's done under the supervision of a physician or it's done under the supervision of a therapist. So I think that certainly helps break that barrier down. Um, the biggest thing is just the the regulatory hurdles right now. Um, I, I mean, the the circles that I kind of follow on social media and so are very pro psychedelic. So it's it's not very often I see the other side, and maybe that's just the kind of you know pages that I follow. So the um, the biggest barrier right now will be will be the regulatory approvals, the FDA, Health Canada, because they're just like any drug that comes to market, they have to go through the full clinical trial pathway, you know, preclinical phase one through phase three. They have to prove the efficacy. They have to prove the safety. Um, and that's probably the biggest hurdle right now. So, you know, I, I think in terms of people thinking, oh, no, drugs, um, I think that's shifted a lot with cannabis. I think there's maybe a few outliers. Um, I certainly know in Canada, it feels a lot more um, acceptable. I think the U.S. may have some bigger hurdles to, to climb um, with the stigma attached around it. But but it's certainly it's well on its way to receiving, um, you know, regulatory approval in the next few years. It's so ironic that opiates are wildly just openly accepted. And yet the opiates are so insanely dangerous, addictive, and they can kill you. Whereas with psilocybin, it can't kill you. You can't overdose on it that I know of. Is is that true? Am I speaking out of school here? No. Well, I mean, it's it's very, very safe um, there, you know, but now you have to prove it, right? Just like mm. any other study or, or substance that you want to give within the regulatory pathway. So, so everyone knows it's safe. We know the dose intimately. I mean, mushrooms as a plant have been taken for thousands of years. It's, it's there, there's just no issue with it. And so I think, um, yeah, I think the biggest hurdle is going to be just just proving that it's safe. I know there's some discussions about um, really trying to figure out if you're talking about the actual mushroom plant itself. That I know there's a lot of different alkaloids and substances along with psilocybin in the mushroom, and and you know people are going to have to prove the safety of all those individual substances. Um, and so it's, you know, there's still a bit of a, a road for it, but there's no reason why um, these products or these materials aren't going to be proven safe. I mean, the theory is there that it's safe now. We just have to prove it. So. The synthetic psilocybin, uh, at the moment, that's super expensive, isn't it? Um, well, we're trying to, I mean, Cygen is trying to create non-exclusive availability, meaning we won't sign an exclusivity agreement with one researcher or one company. We want to make sure everyone gets access to it. Um, you know, as, as right now, it is depending on what you're using it for our pricing structure. It, we feel like our prices are very fair. We do know there's a couple other um, manufacturing organizations that I think charge significantly more. I think just like any market, once more contract manufacturing companies come into this space potentially behind us, we like to think we're the or I think we know we're the first dedicated psychedelic manufacturing company. 
um, as more come into the space, obviously prices will come down as there's more competition. Um, but right now, it will be probably, I don't think it's the actual drug program that's going to be expensive. It's going to be paying a therapist or two therapists for six hours for, you know, multiple sessions. That's probably where the expense is going to come from is, is the therapy side of it, the clinic side of it. Um, so when it really comes down to the full cost of, let's say, a, a treatment session, it's a small percentage of that will be the actual capsule that you take or the drug that you take. One of the important parts is of what you folks are doing is the precision of the dose. I've uh, talked with, uh, might have even been a conversation that you and I had as well, but with the mushrooms, every crop has a different amount of psilocybin in the mushroom and the way it was dried. And the struggle with the natural mushrooms is getting the dose exactly the same every time, which of course all the... uh, psychologists or uh, psychiatrists rather they are really big on having the exact perfect dose even though it doesn't matter if you're over or under with uh, psilocybin it's like it just doesn't matter but they want the precision of dosage um, and, and that seems to have been a barrier and the synthetic psilocybin uh, seems to be solving that issue. Yeah, I think just like any, um, you know, when you're doing a clinical trial or, you know, double blind placebo trial, you need to have a control. You need to know exactly what you're giving to every person who receives that drug. Um, And so because if there's any variability, that could change the outcome of your study. So having a synthetic product, it's very fine tuned. It's very exact. It allows you to get your numbers correctly. Um, So you can say we had 100 patients, 50 of them received exactly 25 milligrams of synthetic psilocybin, here are the results, you're going to have probably a much more favorable outcome when you bring those, um, you know, when you bring that study to, um, for peer review or for, for, um, um, to bring to the regulators. So yes, we, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not pro synthetic or pro plant based. I think they both, or I should say natural. I know some people don't like the term plant based, um, natural that they, they both are going to have their place in the space. Um, they're both valuable. I think they're both very important. I just personally feel that the first, um, drugs that are going to be brought and approved by, by regulators is going to be, is going to be synthetic. Well, even, uh, odd, advocates like Joe Rogan has been huge, I think, for bringing awareness and interest into the world of psychedelics. Uh, He's done several episodes and his audience is absolutely gargantuan. But it's good, I think, you know, uh, getting people to open up more. And I've had some very fun psychedelic experiences, but they were therapeutic for sure. They helped me. Uh, I it's how I I quit drinking. Actually, um, yeah. I, I, my last drink was on April sixteenth of this year, and it was because of a nice mushroom ride that I was able to see the connection of drinking and my life, and I had insights on that that I have never had, at least not at that depth before. So the mushrooms basically taught me and showed me and explained to me uh, how. Drinking is not serving me, even though I wasn't a wild alcoholic or uh, my children have never seen me drunk, that sort of thing. But it still, it was not good for my life, but it was the mushrooms that showed me that. And I speak of them as if they are an entity, because when you're having the experience, that's, that's what it feels like. It feels like they're talking to you like a friend. But um, 
uh, regardless of somebody's uh, beliefs on that, they helped. And that was the bottom line. Now, for addictions, uh, tell me about psilocybin and addictions, because I know I'm not the only one that's been able to kick a bad habit with psilocybin. Yeah, um, I'm. you know, I can't speak too deeply on psilocybin for addiction. I do know there is um, a lot of discussion of, of a couple of different trials regarding addiction. I know that um, Ibogaine has been uh, looked at for opiate addiction. Um, I, I do know that, you know, LSD microdosing for ADHD, there's a whole bunch of different indications that these substances can be used for. Psilocybin seems to be mainly focusing on depression, treatment re- resistant depression, anxiety, those sorts of conditions right now from the studies that I see out there. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because people say, well, you're taking a drug to fix a drug problem. Um, and I know a lot of people might be resistant to that. And I, I you think- mean like dopamine or serotonin? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what you what do anyway. What you're probably seeking when you use whatever your drug of choice is, whether it's alcohol or cocaine or, you know, any opiates, you're, you're seeking something to make yourself feel better. Um, and so, you know, the regardless of what psychedelic you use, because some people have found a huge response with DMT, some people it's psilocybin, some people it's LSD or MDMA, um, you know, I think it's just... The, the fact that there's going to be an option to find what works for you. Are you missing dopamine? Or are you missing serotonin? What is it that you need to overcome? So for example, you know, we're going likely to see MDMA approved for PTSD. Um, it's likely 2022, 2023. This is going to be available for first responders, for veterans, for, um, you know, anyone with severe uh, PTSD. So, and, and the, So what is MDMA? So MDMA is, I guess, what you would have heard as ecstasy. It used to be called ecstasy on the street. Yeah. So um, if that's a term, or I guess now Molly, I'm aging myself here, but that's uh, it used to be called ecstasy, I think, back in the 90s, and now people might call it Molly. Now, to, to say those are street names, those are likely mixed with other substances. This is the pure MDMA. So, so, um, MAPS is complete is in the phase three human trials right now. Um, their phase two human trials had, um, you know, just incredible results. I believe they were granted in 2017 breakthrough therapy designation for the treatment of PTSD by the FDA. Um, they did a phase two trial with, I think it was 107 participants, um, after three sessions with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, two months following treatment, 61% no longer qualified for PTSD. Um, I don't know any other treatment modality that gives those results. And then after 12 months for a follow-up, 68% no longer had PTSD. And these are severe PTSD. I think the average that they suffered for was like 17 to 20 years that yeah. they'd been suffering from PTSD. So, you know, these, these drugs... Um, are opening a whole new world into mental health care that just weren't working with classic antidepressants and talk therapy. And, and we know it wasn't working because look at suicide rates and look at, um, you know, substance use disorder rates. And, and what is it that people are seeking? There, there just isn't a solution out there that actually works. Well, for the audience, they've heard me say it many, many times, but I'll say it many, many times more. Out of all the PhDs that I've had on, one of the things that is a consensus is that 
all addictions are a result of trauma. You're trying to, to medicate the trauma with that addiction. And what I believe psychedelics do, at least from my personal experience, is that it somehow it replaces therapy by getting you in touch with your subconscious and you fix yourself by becoming self-aware and being able to talk to your deep, dark uh, sub- subconscious. You were able to process those traumas. When you process those traumas and you put them in a different framework then you are healing from that trauma if you heal from the trauma there's no need to be an addict or an alcoholic and that's how it fixes the addictions at least in in my experience that's how it works yeah a lot of these just kind of remove the the ego factor it removes the Mm. fear it removes it just allows you to take a look at what happened what was that event that set you over the edge or what was the series of events and it just allows you to look at it without the fear without the ego and to actually process it and and that's why they find that the talk therapy is so important because it's one thing to just go take the drug and sit on your couch and listen to great music but if you have someone to kind of guide you okay let's keep working towards what this is as opposed to avoiding it because just because you're on a substance doesn't mean it's a magic um you know some people it may be and a lot of people it has been that kind of magical experience Experience, but having a you know a professional there to help kind of guide you towards let's go towards this pain this time let's go towards the fear this time but you're not going to be in pain or in fear while you face it because you have this um, this drug helping you look at it head on so it's yeah it's just really um, I'm just really excited about this especially coming from my background where I see so many colleagues suffer I've suffered with my own issues um, and to shift into a field that I know is gonna I know is gonna help people well let's talk about that now in addition to being a part of SciGen you are also a paramedic and you have been injured with with an OSI at what point did you go wait a second I think I may have an injury here Yeah, so I'm, you know, I started my career in, you know, 2002. um, And I, you know, I've worked my way up from EMR, EMT, paramedic, all the way through to critical care paramedic and, um, or sorry, ALS, I forgot, yeah, paramedic, ALS, whatever, through to critical care paramedic. And I, um, it it is, it's one of those things that it's hard to pinpoint which, where it was, where did it happen? Um, I certainly know there were some incidents um, working in, you know, retrieval medicine and avi- in, in the aviation capacity of um, less about issues with the patient, more about issues with the plane. Oh my God, are we going to crash? Those sort of, you know, flying into really nasty storms, flying at night, um, just going on missions that gave me a lot of anxiety. And now I'm used to be a very fearless person. I love adrenaline sports. I kite surf, I bungee jump, I skydive. And um, all of a sudden I started feeling scared and I never really, it was like, what is this unfamiliar feeling I'm feeling? Like I just was reckless before, I guess you could say. And all of a sudden I was second guessing myself and, you know, I, I, before every flight, I would send my partner, I love you. I'd send him a text message because I was worried, oh my God, am I never going to speak to him again after this? Like, and before every single flight on a sunny, beautiful day for a 45 minute flight, I'm like, this is it. This is the end. And, um, and then it was fine for a while. I was able to manage it, but it just, um, 
started getting to the point where I was like, just really resistant to going on these flights. And that's not good for patient care. We're supposed to just go, right? We need to go and do this. And, and so I took, um, you know, some time off to, to deal with that. But I think, and when I started dealing with that, it, it just real, I just realized it's, it's, it's just cumulative. It's just all of it over the years, all the deaths and the suffering and, just the, you know, the moral distress we go through on a regular basis. I'm making it sound like such a horrible career, but there's, you know, there's really lovely parts of this job. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, I can't pinpoint it. Like, like I said, there's a few big incidents I could pinpoint and, and that certainly helped with, you know, going through workers compensation board and getting the time off and that those were the things that really set me over the edge. So. And I think that's I probably more. I think it's more common that uh, to not be able to pinpoint it. I mean, some can, some it's just one big instance. And that's where some of the confusion is in the public. You know, was it one big instance? Uh, Was it something because it was super scary? Or was it something because it was super horrific and horrible? Um, Could be all the above. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, the amount of incidents that I've been through is kind of ridiculous. Uh, but there are a couple of standouts where I go, oh, I think I think that was a turning point there. I think that was it. But uh, for most people, especially in the first responder world, it's death by a thousand cuts most times. Mm-hmm. Most times. Yeah, I didn't. And it's interesting because it wasn't like this super obvious suddenly nightmares, suddenly can't sleep, suddenly it was this slow decline into just increasing irritability. Mm -hmm. My fuse was shorter. I would get angry all the time about very stupid things. I was, you know, if you had a video or recording in my car while I was driving, the profanities that would come out over nothing, just, just really like just push button to set off. And, and, you know, my colleagues would notice a decline. I'm not my friendly bubbly self anymore. I'm, I get frustrated easily. You know, I just, you just turn into not a very nice person to be around. And that just wasn't who I am. Um, And that was, you know, when people started noticing that, and then when it started to affect me at home, then I realized, okay, something's going on here. Did you notice that it was you or did you think it was everybody else was starting to be? It's like, why is everybody being such a dick? <laughs> oh, totally. At the beginning, of course, it's not me. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone else, it's, you know, we have to go on this stupid flight and we have to go do this call and why are we doing this and why are we doing that? And I had a, you know, I had one of my therapists say to me, Nadia, this is your job. Like, this is what you do. And I was like, like, just offended that I had to do my job all of a sudden. And it was like, well, where did that happen? Like, this is, I love this medicine. I love this work. Why am I suddenly hating everything about it? And um, yeah, it was like, oh, you know, we're too busy or we don't have enough staff or trying to blame everything. But, but that, okay, something is wrong with me right now and looking at myself And yes, of course, there's factors in all of it. We are exposed. Everyone is overworked right now during the pandemic. Everyone, you know, every ambulance service in Canada probably has staffing issues. You could plunk me in a different ambulance service, and I guarantee you the talk, the bumper talk at the back of the ambulance will be the same in Edmonton as it is in Toronto, as it is in Halifax. So there's no, that's not going to change so we have to change. I have to change. I have to adjust and, and get well so that I have the resiliency to be in that environment again. 
You starting to get scared of the flights makes perfect sense because catastrophization is one of the PTSD symptoms um, mm-hmm. uh, for myself as well for anybody in our peer support groups. Expecting the worst is a symptom of PTSD because the reason it was gradual and it just kind of sneaks up on you because your brain is um, gradually being rewired to the amygdala. So the little brain's doing all the thinking. <laughs> which isn't good. It's great for an emergency. It sucks for everything else. And that rewiring, that's why it's cumulative because there's more and more yeah. neural connections to the amygdala. So it starts taking over and doing everything. So you're always expecting the worst and on high guard. Yeah. And I just have these weird, like, Oh, I'm scared of the fixed wing, but I'm not scared of the helicopter or I'm scared <laughs> of going to this airport, but not that like just these totally irrational, like, oh, this, this landing, this runways, you know, a dangerous runway because it's in the mountains versus, you know, somewhere else. I just had these weird things that kept popping up in my, I mean, I'm so lucky. I have just such a wonderful team to work with and they're so patient and, um, we're very close at our station and I'm able to really talk about this openly with everyone, but it definitely is, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's so frustrating mm-hmm. because I think I'm a very a reasonably intelligent, logical person and just these very bizarre things happening in my head that I can't explain. So but you're, you, I, I mean, you I are now because I know why, but yeah. it's, you know, your frontal, I think that's the biggest thing is just knowing why, and then you can get the help you need. To absolutely. Your frontal cortex is reasonable, but your amygdala isn't. Exactly. And that's the problem. Yeah, fight or flight. <laughs> At what point did you reach out for help? Did you have an aha moment? Um, yeah, it happened kind of uh, last year in the end of January. And um, yeah, I just had one incident that I just, you know, we weren't with a patient, we weren't with anything. I just, I, I just burst into tears in the middle of a shift. And, um, you know, we got back to our base, I was able to, you know, unload and, and, and say, I, I have to go home. I can't, I just, I can't do this. I, that we were up in the air while this happened. Like I said, we didn't have a patient or anything, but um, we were just returning to our base. And I, um, I just was like, I just want my feet on the ground. I don't want to be in an aircraft right now. Um, and once we were on the ground, I, I kind of packed up and went home. And I took about um, two and a half months off. And, and I'm, see, I'm one of those people that I feel like if I'm off work too long, I'm never going to go back. So I really, luckily, you know, during, then the pandemic hit, uh, COVID hit, everything kind of shifted in our operations and there was an opportunity for me, for me to continue working on a ground capacity. Um, so I was able to keep my feet on the ground. And, and so I was able to go to ease myself back into work, um, you know, working on a ground transport unit and, and um, it, yeah. And then I worked my way back into flying again um, and with the help of, you know, our team psychologist. Um, and then I had a couple more incidents and, and I just realized, you know, I have to work less. So I now work half time. I, I do, um, I share a position with another uh, colleague. So I basically work half the shifts now, um, which has been really helpful for my recovery time in between work. Um, and so that's been really helpful. And then, you know, I work with an occupational therapist. I have a therapist as well. And, and I just, um, 
we really, I really just try to be, have a lot of more awareness about my feelings and what's coming up and what's triggering and then using techniques that they teach me to mitigate it. What kind of techniques? So um, one of the ones I really like is the grounding technique and it's so simple. It's just take my hands and touch something physical. So I usually take my uniform shirt or my jacket and I just rub my clothing between my fingers and I just feel it. I just feel something and say you're safe. You're on, well, I might not be on the ground. I might be up in a plane, but I'm I'm touching something physical. Um, And then focusing on uh, when I feel that physical response in my body, um, just kind of, I, I don't know what they call it. I, I, it's basically, I call it like the muscle tensing technique. And I work from my feet up to the top of my body and I tense each muscle individually. And then I tense my whole body and then I relax. And that feeling after when you relax is almost like a release and it kind of lets go of that tension in my body. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, they, that, and it's simple because no one knows I'm doing it. Patient doesn't know I'm doing it. <laughs> We're all good. <laughs> um, and, and right now I'm good. I'm capable. I'm, I'm having some good shifts. I, you know, I still have my struggles. Um, I still feel like I have a short fuse sometimes, but um, everything is, is moving forward. And I, I'm just really appreciative of all those support I get at work um, from my employer and my colleagues and from, you know, all the team that's helping me through this. So. Have you increased your self-care? Yeah, I mean, I, I've i really started trying to walk more. Um, I actually got a, a, a walking desk because they do do a lot of computer work with SciGen. So I know it seems silly like a walk outside, but this way I can get work done and walk at the same time. So um, it's kind of like a treadmill desk. So I basically have a treadmill with a desk on top and, and I'm able to stand and walk. And sometimes I'll walk for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours while I get emails sent out. And Perfect. Um, that seems to really help. I don't even notice it's happening, but I'll, I'll finish instead of finishing two hours of work, feeling uh, like feeling gross or, you know, my back hurts or I've been sitting too long. I finish two hours of work and, and feel really good. Physical activity is huge. Uh, powerlifting, uh, lifting any kind of heavy weight, uh, whatever mm-hmm. is happening with the chemicals in your body. It is so important. It helps so much. Uh, there, there's several of us in this injured community that, um, are addicted to working out. Then there's the other ones that uh, look like Thor in the last uh, <laughs> Endgame. <laughs> it's it's funny you say that because I, I you know when I uh, years ago I went into the whole fitness. I did fitness competitions. I was published in magazines. I you know I was very. Uh, very, very fit. <laughs> and it, uh, um, actually, I think they did a whole series in a magazine called Fit Responders. So it was me and some police officers and a couple of firefighters that were featured on this magazine as fitness models, I guess. Were you in the uh, firefighter or the paramedic calendar? No, no, we don't have a paramedic <laughs> calendar, but um, the, <laughs> but it was, you Hello, know, it was January. Really, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. We, um, we, you know, I, I just, I took it too far again. Like we do, right. Um, the type A personality, I'm not just going to get fit. I'm going to be the fittest in the and world. So that, pardon me. In the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I had to rein that in a bit, but I still have a love of yeah lifting. I love powerlifting. I love the, um, you know, deadlifting and squatting and doing all the good stuff. Um, I, but I don't take it to the level I did before. I'm not in the gym twice a day. I eat normally. I don't, uh, you know, I think that in itself is its own, <laughs> is its own issue. 
Do you see the correlation when um, you haven't been overly physically active? For does it even happen? Do you go a couple of three weeks with uh, with lower physical activity, and do you see the difference? Oh, I totally do. Um, you know, I, I I just start feeling like instead of waking up in the morning and feeling fresh and ready to go, it's like just the slog to get out of bed. Um, I I certainly notice my symptoms a lot more are a lot more apparent. Um, yeah, that edginess that like, I'm just not a nice person. (laughs) (laughs) And I admit, I can admit that. And, uh, so yeah, the physical activity really helps. Um, one thing that I, you know, my partner calls it my superpower is my ability to sleep. I'm very grateful that my sleep has not been affected throughout this whole process. If anything, I probably sleep too much and not like the sleep all day in bed thing, but just, I need like nine or 10 hours of sleep to feel like I'm normal. So um, I've never been one to kind of wallow in bed all day, but I, uh, I certainly need a large amount of sleep to feel good. And I do sleep well and sorry to all of those who don't, but that's not, a which is that most of us. <laughs> yeah. Which is most of us, but uh, I've actually um, in episode 71, I think it was, I had on, Dr. Pat O'Leary, uh, MMS Medical Solutions, and it's an app on your phone, and it really helps. It's um, It always helps me at least a little, but with some people, it helps with their sleep massively. So, mm-hmm. hey, any of the new tech that works, fantastic. Circling back to psychedelics, um, mm-hmm. are you looking for people to participate in trials? So we're, um, we're not actually doing excuse me, we're not actually doing any trials right now for, for Cygen. So we just support other groups that are doing clinical trials. Um, I do know that the, like I said, the phase three PTSD MDMA trials, I believe there is a site, a few sites in Canada, although don't quote me on that, but that's already in process. But I do know that there are many, many trials happening right now for various indications. Um, So just Googling it, do research, follow press releases to find out who's announcing what trial. Um, I believe there's a database online. I'm sorry, I don't know the website that lists all trials that are currently being applied for um, with Health Canada or with the FDA and um, and that they're enrolling patients. So, you know, if you see something like, uh, you know, you have treatment resistant depression and you see a study for that for, let's say, psilocybin, um, certainly, you know, try to get yourself signed up for that. It's, it's, it is very safe. Um, but, you know, the point of these trials is they're going to prove safety and hopefully improvement in efficacy. So, um, yeah, I think it's just a matter of doing research. Yeah, right. if you want to be interested in the trial. Well, Nadia Vanderhaden. Thank you so much for being here today. We, we covered a lot of ground, actually, and it was an extremely fast 34 minutes. But uh, can you believe it? It feels like it was more like three minutes. But thank you for being on Tango Romeo, and thank you for being so open about sharing your personal story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I think speaking about it is important to help others, so I'm happy to share. By recovering out loud, it empowers others to reach out for help because it lets them know that they're not weirdos they're not crazy well maybe they are weirdos maybe they are crazy but it's okay because they're in good company yes we are all weirdos and crazy (laughs) at some point (laughs) please stay on the line you're listening to operation dango romeo the drama recovery podcast
Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. <laughs> 